morning, everybody. So good to be together, packed in here today. Uh, thanks for everybody. Hello to the balcony. Can we, can we, yeah, all right, all right, all right. Good to see all of you. Do we have anybody in Overflow? Come on now, Overflow. We hear you. We see you. All right. And we've also got people online. So can we give a big warm welcome to anybody joining us online today? So good to be with you. If you're brand new today, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, so glad that you've joined us. Before I jump into our teaching today, uh, I, I, I want to ask for your help. We, um, as we start into and lead into the fall here, uh, CSU starts uh, in just a little over a week, and uh, we've got school starting and family vacations are coming to a close, and we get into the fall rhythm and all that kind of thing. And as a result, um, uh, attendance goes up here as we go into the fall uh, here at Mill City. And so um, we need some help to accommodate and to welcome and provide uh, uh, hospitality, not just for adults, but also kids. And so maybe you haven't jumped into Mill City yet, uh, you're looking for a place to get involved. Uh, we could use your help in a lot of different spaces, and, uh, and so if you would, I'd really uh, love it if you could take a moment, and uh, you can fill out this connection card, you can write on there, or check the box, lift team, or maybe you can, if you have a specific question, you can answer that, uh, and one, somebody from our team will be in touch with you to give you some details on how that works. If you're ever uh, in, a, in a season of, okay, I'm ready to jump in, uh, one of the steps for that is to go to Connect, which will be happening in a couple of weeks, it's always the fourth Sunday evening of the month. And so we'd love to see you there, but could uh, really use some extra help here in these upcoming weeks and months uh, as we lean into the fall together. So it is, it is not possible to drive north and south on I-25 at the exact same time. Can you be in physically in Colorado and Texas at the exact same time? Why you would want to be, I'm not sure, but it is not possible. You cannot jump off your roof of your house and resist gravity, right? It is not possible. You can't be a follower. Can you be a follower of Jesus and love cats at the same time? Not possible. They don't exemplify any characteristics of a loving God, okay? <laughs> we are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and here as we're in the second half of chapter 6, Jesus is presenting an impossibility in this portion of this sermon. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus in this teaching is not saying it's, it's hard. He's not saying it's tricky. He's not even saying it's unspiritual. He's saying it's impossible, not an option. So Jesus in this teaching is trying to save us from spiritual schizophrenia so that we don't waste our time and our lives trying to do something that cannot be done. It's maybe could be compared to marriage. 
You can't be married and have a girlfriend or a boyfriend at the same time that is not your spouse. I mean, you could, you can try, but, but even in trying, it actually means then that there's something not right with the marriage, right? There's, they, they, don't, they can't ultimately go together because, because marriage is about single devotion to one, not multiple devotions, because our, our hearts only have room in the way that Jesus is talking about here for full devotion to one. And maybe we can come around the idea of like, okay, I get that in my heart, but actually this isn't just a heart idea or a head idea. This is a practical idea because because at some point it will become practically impossible for this to become true. Because at some point one will have to override the other or take priority over the other. You know, it, it, for instance, like community. You can't say, I want deep community, but then be non-committal. You know, to say, I'm going to join a city group, but I'm only going to come when it kind of works out for me and I feel like it. And when I come, I'm not sure that I'm even going to open up. So, you know, I'm going to leave my options open because I don't want to miss out on maybe something. So I might, might come. I might make it every, you know, once or twice a semester or I'll come. And if I don't really like feel it, that I'm done, you know, and and then we wonder why I don't have deeper relationships. Why? Because, because at some point, the practical decision of where am I going to go on, my, on Thursday night is going to come down to a value in my heart. Our priorities get reflected in our decisions, get reflected in our schedules. When Jesus is giving this command here in this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, His original hearers might have heard something from the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments and specifically the First Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Another way of saying that is no one takes priority over me. Or as Jesus has said in many of his other teachings in the Gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Every part of you, full-on devotion. In this particular passage, Jesus is emphasizing the word, or the emphasis would have been on the word, serve. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters, because in this particular day, he's not talking about enjoy or value, but serve in this context is to give total allegiance. And whomever or whatever you give your allegiance to becomes your master. Which means then that in the context of money, we are susceptible to this regardless of the size of our paycheck, the size of our bank account, the size of our investments. It is not reserved for those who have a lot. You can have nothing or you could have no job and no income or no paycheck and still be susceptible to having given your allegiance, your full heart devotion to money. Now, can we just be honest for a moment? Because if we're honest, money is an alluring master. Because it can give us a sense and a feeling or an illusion of power and control. Because we like to feel like we're powerful and we're in control. And so we might get a sense of security 
But if we allow that to be our place for power and control, then it will turn our relationships into transactions and people into objects to be used or manipulated, therefore dehumanizing image bearers of God. Which is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain. So it gives the illusion of power control, but it's actually uncertain. But to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What's the Apostle Paul saying? We either love God and use money or love money and use God. Because wealth is a ferocious master. Loves to give orders and boss you around. Now, that being said, it also can make an excellent servant. But the ability for it to overwhelm us and overtake us is the reason that Jesus uses this strong language of love and hate. You either love the one and hate the other. You might say, well, that's strong language. It's not meant sentimentally, like, oh, I feel love towards money. I feel hateful. It's used comparatively. Meaning, the love for one or the devotion to one is going to make the other look in comparison like hate. That's the the difference. It's a comparative statement. Which is why in the very last portion of this verse, it says you cannot serve both God and money. Now, if you've been around church or maybe around the Bible for a while, maybe you've heard this not as God and money, but you heard it as you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, if you've re- you read that, sometimes you might be like, is there a misspelling? What's, what is that? In the first century, they would have understood mammon as, or mammon was a descri- description of a deity, a pagan deity of wealth. And that pagan deity would have been expressed as money ruling over people. So not just wealth as, or money as paper or coins, but wealth as a power, wealth as a god, wealth as a demonic force, drawing you into its orbit so that you might actually obsess, become obsessive about the keeping of or the obtaining of wealth and possessions. Which is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against paper and coins, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Meaning there's, there's more to it than just what we can see or feel. There are demonic forces at work in our relationships and between people, in our own hearts, in such a way that, that we can become in, enslaved to things. Good things can become ultimate things and therefore have slavery over us. Now, maybe this passage and others that might talk about the supernatural and talk about powers and, and principalities and demonic forces, sometimes... Sometimes the response to that is to be superstitious, meaning, meaning to, to have kind of an obsessive 
an ex- excessive fascination with or belief that there's a demon under every rock. Every issue is a demonic force at work. You know, you, you get a ticket for speeding and you rebuke the spirit of a heavy lead foot, right? You know. And oftentimes that can be used as a cop-out to take any personal responsibility or acknowledge the way in which we have sin and brokenness in our own lives that contributes to the things that happen in our world. Now, on the other side, that's one ditch. There's another ditch on the opposite side of the road, and it's the ditch of being understitious. You have superstitious on one ditch, and then you have understitious on the other side, and that is, ah, there is no, it's a demon under no rock ever. And it must, must just be human fault and human flaws, and, you know, if we can just get all the things right, and it leads, actually, to the idea of progressivism, which says that we just need to get the dials right, the legislation right, the leaders right, and all that kind of thing, and we can make this world right. I heard somebody say, actually, there's probably a demon under every third rock. So there's somewhere in the middle. The point is not the number of demons under a particular number of rocks. The point is this. Money is making a bid for my heart and for yours. And it is not a passive attack. The enemy is gunning for you and he's gunning for me. Because if we can get hooked... If we can get pulled into its obsessive dark orbit, it will mess up our relationships. It will mess up some of the things that God was meant to be in in our lives, but in a different way than they're supposed to be. So you might say, okay, if the enemy is on attack, how do I defend myself? How do I protect myself from that particular force that is at work in our world? Some might say, well, you rebuke it, rebuke the spirit. And prayer, let me, let me say this, prayer is important. Prayer is an important aspect. Spiritual warfare is an important aspect of our lives. But spiritual warfare doesn't just look like, like prayer and rebuking spirits. It looks like practice in our lives. And so, so we want to live in such a way, in actuality and practicality, so that we stay away from and are formed in a particularly different way. And so, so we want to embrace the spiritual practice of generosity. Generosity protects us from the spirit of mammon. Because generosity is not compatible with greed. You can't be greedy and generous at the same time. I love what John Wesley, he was an 18th century British evangelist, he says, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it find a way into my heart. Just give it away quickly because it might somehow put its hook in me. And when I was growing up and I was, I, 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 you're generally conservative in the way that I manage finances. And, and, and so when I was younger, specifically in high school and, you know, started to have a job, started to get, gain some money, all that kind of thing, I, 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 was, I was not overly generous. Generosity was difficult for me. And I came across the teachings of Jesus and this particular quote from John Wesley, and I thought, that's what I needed. Because what I would do is think about it and justify why I shouldn't be generous and I needed to keep the money for a rainy day or whatever. And so I began to quickly give. If I heard of an opportunity, I said, I can do that. I'll help. As a way to make sure that it didn't somehow creep its way into my heart. 
One of the values of our house, cultural values, is to embrace radical generosity. And the word radical is in there for a reason because we serve a radically generous God. A radically generous God who expresses that generosity from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end. Generosity in creation. It's not like, eh, here you go, here's some dirt. Here's a dirt ball to walk on. I mean, the detail and the generosity of things to enjoy and experience is unbelievable. And the generosity then of grace as a result of rebellion to the way of God is unbelievable, expressed fully in the life and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what happens as a result? Eternal life. That is radically generous. So we want to be like the God that we serve. Anybody ever remember or watch Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Anybody remember that? I think it's a reruns now or something like that. But I remember watching that show for anybody who's unfamiliar. They would find a family usually uh, in a dire situation of some form or another, maybe because of loss or, or a loss of income or medical issues and debt piling up and all these things. And, and not only were they unable to take care of that, they also were having difficulty paying, not only maybe staying in their house or fixing it up in a necessary way. And so they would come in, hear the story, hear about the family, and then they would send them away to Disney World for a week or something. And, and basically, as you saw the, the headlights in the far distance, it's almost like as they were on their way out, the bulldozer was on its way in and, and they just bulldozed the house down and start over. And then the, the family would come back in a week and, and, and they'd pull in and, and there'd be all these people here because it took an army of people to, to cause this house to go back up in a week and and, and then they, they'd get out of the car, and, but they couldn't see the house because there's this big, huge bus in front of it. And so the big famous line from the show was, are you ready to see your house? And they'd say, yes, move that bus. And the buster, and then they, oh, right? That was what happened. Because maybe they were expecting to see their old house painted fixed up a little bit. The old house wasn't even there. It was gone. They're seeing like something completely different in front of them. You know, they didn't say, hey, we painted the front door for you and we know you didn't have time for it. And then they go inside. And they haven't just like, okay, now you have a, a better working house. No, they've like, the little girl's room is like, built in such a way that it's attentive to a detail about something that she loves. And then you go into the, the boy's room and, and, and there's all these different uniquenesses and they went, they didn't just like build them a nice, just basic, they went over the top. And, and I don't know about you, um, but I, when I watched that show, I cried every time. <laughs> every time. I mean, you're just choked up. Why? I think there's something about seeing this radical generosity that connects into our hearts, realizing this is something about God. And there's something about God in that. And maybe we can't build somebody a brand new house, but maybe there's something about us reflecting the radical generosity of God in the people around us. Maybe the question that we should be asking ourselves as followers of Jesus is, am I becoming more generous? Am I becoming more generous?
And then some of you may be like, well, I will give more when I have more. Well, I would love for that to be true, but studies show that if you aren't generous with a little, you won't be generous with a lot. There was a study done not too long ago that um, surveyed people depending on incomes and how much money they gave away. And this is a wide range, but the average amount given away for somebody making between $100,000 and $1 million a year. Wide range, obviously, but the percentage of their income that they gave away was 2.6%, 2.5%. Now, you're like, okay, well, that's not so bad. That's, you know, especially if that amount is close to a million dollars, 2.5% of that is pretty darn good. True. They also found that those who made less than $20,000 a year gave away 4.6% of their income. The amount was less, but the percentage was almost double. Why? Maybe there's something about knowing, like, I'm close to not having enough. I certainly don't want anybody to be closer to not enough than I am. If we can't give out of the little we have, we will have a difficult time giving out of the plenty that we have. Clement of Alexandria, a theologian born in 150 AD, said, by giving to no one, one becomes poorer. In the end, it is not the one who keeps, but the one who gives away who is rich. And it is in giving away, not possession, which renders a person happy. That flies in the face of the cultural narrative of our day that says, the more you have, the happier you are. The way of Jesus says, the more you give away, the more fulfilled and happy you are. Which is why the Apostle Paul, continuing in 1 Timothy Earlier, I read the verse where he says, command those who are rich. He says, continues on, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Sounds like a little throwback to Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount just several verses ago. Storing up treasures in heaven, Jesus says so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So how do we protect ourselves against the demonic powers that look to pull us into its orbit? Generosity. Generosity in general. But I want also to take a moment and talk about tithing specifically. Now, for some of you, you, you might have been around church for a while, you, you understand tithing, all that kind of stuff. For some of you, your palms just got sweaty and you're thinking about like, oh, I don't know, money and giving to the church and all that. And some of you are new to church or new to faith and you're like, I don't even know what that is. So wherever you might find yourself here today, I just want to take a moment and walk ourselves through the scripture and give kind of a, a big 30,000 foot view on what the scripture has to say about tithing in specific. Tithe is a tenth. It's a percentage, so 10% of our income given away to the church. Maybe you hear the phrase tithes and offerings. Tithes would be the 10%. The offering would be above the 10%, then given away maybe uh, to uh, an a on-campus organization like crew or navigators or given away to a particular uh, uh, other organization around the world. So that's tithes and offerings. The first mention of tithing in the Bible is Genesis chapter 14. And Abraham uh, wins a battle and he gives a tenth or a tithe 
of the winnings to Melchizedek the priest. Now, there is, this is before the law was written out, which we find a little bit later in like Leviticus, Exodus. This is Genesis 14. Now, so there was no command, this is what you have to do. There is a possibility, scholars say, that this was somewhat customary in the, in the culture of the day, but it was not a command. In Leviticus 27, verse 30, we do have it being worked into the law for the Israelites. And he says this, a tithe of everything from the land. Now, the reason it's from the land is it was an agrarian culture. So they didn't have... Uh, paper and coins and all that, they were working with and would exchange based on fruits and grains and all that kind of thing. That was the basis of their economy. So a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So the tithe was a a reminder that everything belonged to God and a portion was given back to God to thank Him for what they had received. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. How? With the first fruits of all your crops. This idea of first fruits, again, an agrarian term, was meant the, the first of more to come. So it meant honor God with your wealth by giving your wealth away, not at the end when I got a little bit left over or I don't have anything left over, but do it at the beginning. Modern terms, do it at the beginning when you get your paycheck, not at the end once you've decided what you wanted and you've spent all your discretionary income. Malachi chapter 3, the, the prophet Malachi, speaking to the children of Israel, says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The storehouse, referring to the temple, is a distribution to be able to not only take care of the temple or the church, but also then to be able to take care of those in need. He says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, I've heard this particular verse or passage taught before where it's like, if you give financially and tithe to God, then he's going to bless you financially. And I I think, well, that's actually not what this says. It says, I will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings. Might it be financial? Maybe. Might it be not financial? Maybe. Have I seen people tithe and have financial difficulty? Yes. Have I seen people give and tithe and have the floodgates of financial blessing open up? Yes. Are those exactly related? I don't know how they're related. This is what I think God is trying to say. Something supernatural happens when we loosen our grip and we give generously to the house of God. You might be like, I don't know about tithing, and I've seen it abused, and, you know, do this, and God will bless you, and all of that kind of thing. Is this just an Old Testament thing, or is this, this what, what's, uh... Jesus does talk about it, which we should be always be asking the question, what does Jesus have to say about this, or what does Jesus reflect in relationship to this or any other type of subject? Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 23, he says, speaking to the religious leaders of the day, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You tithe on your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So, I mean, the Pharisees were very 
attuned to the particularities of the law, believing that if they did it exactly right, then that was what was needed in order for the Messiah to come, in order to save them from their oppressors of the day. So down to the last tiniest bit, imagine putting some cinnamon and sugar, tenth, got to push it out here. I mean, they're meticulous. And Jesus says to them, ah, you missed something. You missed faithfulness and justice to the marginalized and people who are on the, on the margins of society and in great need of health and help and, and in need of your assistance. But he doesn't say, forget that. That's a dumb thing. That's an Old Testament. No, no, no. He says, you're doing one thing right, but you're missing something else. You should go together. So you might be asking, so you're saying then that Jesus is saying, just give 10% and then you can check the box and all is good and then I get the rest and we're all done. No. Jesus is not interested in 10%. Jesus is interested in 100% of our lives. And he knows that if we are to give 10%, if we're to give of that, it does something about the rest of our hearts and our lives. Jesus is wanting and has been exemplified all throughout the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is interested not just in our behavior, do your 10% and we're good. He's interested in our hearts. Remember, fifth chapter of Matthew. You might have not killed anybody, but you've got contempt in your heart. You might not be sleeping with another woman or another man, but you've got lust in your heart. So Jesus here now on the topic of money isn't just about do this on the outside, but have greed in your heart. No, no, no. I want your heart to be fully mine. And I don't know what type of teaching or what type of church culture or giving culture or anything like that you've been around, but tithing is not, it's not a tip, a Christian tip jar or, or a God tax. Not even a, it's not even a divine investment strategy. Tithing is about worship because worship is all about our heart, which is exactly what Jesus is after. He's after our hearts. He's after our worship. He's after our allegiance. He's after our devotion. He's after our single-hearted devotion. And he knows, and he's pointing out the different ways and the different things that can get in the way of those things. And not only like, eh, pull us off a little bit, like, but fully pull us off track. Jonathan Sachs, he's a British rabbi, wrote the book Morality. He says, our humanity matters more than our profitability. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about us becoming fully human in relationship to what it looks like to be more like Jesus. So giving and tithing and being generous is about formation. It's not about a duty, do this thing, do this exact percentage. It's about formation of our hearts and our lives. See, tithing is formational in the sense that it is a consistent attack against greed reminding us that money is a gift and our hearts belong in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a giving buzz. 
you know, like where you found out about something and you gave them a hundred bucks, or you, you found out about a cause that was really important or meaningful, and, and you gave, and you're like, oh, that felt really awesome. That's wonderful. Tithing doesn't always give you a giving buzz. And so I think there's something about this being a discipline. It's a happens at the beginning of every month, happens when I get my paycheck, happens in whatever way you set it up, but, but sometimes it's just a discipline. It's just, see, formation doesn't just happen once. If you, if you want to get stronger, if you want to grow your muscles, you go to the gym, not once, unfortunately, but consistently. There is no formation without repetition. So if we're going to be formed into the likeness of Jesus, being generous, not being attached to money and possessions, then there has to be repetition in our generosity, and tithing is one of the ways that that happens. It cultivates and creates something in us. I grew up in a Christian home, and my parents always taught me about tithing and, and about generosity to the church. And, and I remember uh, one time when I was seven, I, I decided that I, I didn't have a job, so I didn't have any money, so I wanted to tithe for whatever reason at, at that particular age. And so I decided I was going to start a business. So I decided I was going to sell fruit. So I went into my parents' fridge and pulled all the fruit out of the, out of the fruit drawer. So I had a pile of apples and bananas and, and pears and oranges, and I got a table, and I, I got a sign, fruit, 10 cents, I think, per, per piece of fruit, and, and I got my own like money box, and I was so ready, and I, I set up the table, put the oranges and the apples and displayed it, put my chair behind it, sat down in the living room of our house (laughs) and sold all the fruit on my table. I had a great first day, sold all the fruit on my table to my parents. It was just awesome. And I thought, I should do this tomorrow. So I went back, pulled the fruit back out of the drawer that got sold the previous day, put it back on the table Sold it all the second day. I ended up after day two. I'm like, this is awesome. A business is super successful. My parents bought it both days. They bought it three times. So I had 20, you know, I don't know, 20 dimes, $2, split across my two extra dimes. It's my tithe. Next Sunday, brought my two dimes to church, dropped it into the bucket. That's awesome. Always done it. Now, tithe ever since. Have I ever had financial stress? Absolutely. Have I ever had finances grip my heart and for me to be like obsessed with it? Honestly, no. And I think one of the reasons for that is just the built-in discipline of like, it's not mine. It's not mine. Here you go. Happy to contribute to the house of God and, not, and make sure that this doesn't have a grip on my life. I found myself, and I, I mentioned having a, a difficulty in in, in high school and college when I started to make more money and work over the summers and all that and the amount goes up and you're like, oh, that's, that's not two dimes anymore. But I found myself, even in those wrestlings, to be get released from the grip of money, which gave me the freedom to love and give to others and to live open-handedly before God and others. So if you've been around here for a little while, you know that we have a weekly practice, a weekly practice so that we don't just hear things here on a Sunday, 
and then go out, oh, that was interesting, that was a good idea, but that we actually take what we learn and do something with it in order to incorporate it into our lives. So this is our weekly practice. I want you to evaluate your budget and ask yourself two questions. What would it take for me to tithe? And am I becoming more generous? Now, in asking that question, some of you might be like, I already tithe, it's good. But it's important still, am I becoming more generous? You might ask that question, what would it look like for me to tithe? And and you could, but you're like, but I don't want to. Explore that feeling. You might say, I can't, but I want to. What would it look like to change things or start where you are? These are the wrestlings that God wants us to go through in order to open our hands and live not under the power of a master aside from God so that we might experience the beauty of the way of Jesus and the power of the kingdom of God. Jesus came into the world, gave his entire life away. Jesus never asks us to do something he didn't already do. He doesn't just point the way, he leads the way. And he gave his life away, went to a cross, sacrificed his life that we might have life came out of the grave that we might have eternal life. And so the invitation for each one of us today is to step into that generosity. Step into the generous forgiveness and life of God. For some of you, maybe this is your first time in church. To step into that, maybe it's your first time in a long time. To step into that is to say, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. All of it. And as we say that, maybe you just said that under your breath. What we're doing and saying is you have access to it all. My finances, my relationships, my career, my time, my decisions. It's all yours. And we begin this journey of us surrendering our hearts and our lives fully to Him. And for all of us, may we come to the realization and the revelation of the generosity of God. And knowing that as Jesus went to the cross, not just to save us, but to disarm the powers and principalities of this world. Because they are present, but because of Jesus, we don't have to live under its power. That we can live free. And we can live in wholehearted, full devotion and experience the beauty of Jesus and the fullness of God. So let's pray together. Father, we need you. We're desperate for your power. We're desperate for your way. We're desperate for your word. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and we would allow you to examine our hearts. That we would allow you to search us and know us and to find any offensive or anxious way in us in relationship to finances, wealth, and possessions. And so Holy Spirit, have your way. And may the generosity of God be reflected in our lives in the ways that we respond to you, to others in need. We pray, Father, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth, in our lives, in our church as it is in heaven. This we pray in the powerful, death-defeating name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.